Let us pray. Loving God, we pray that you will give us ears to listen, minds to understand, and hearts to love. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this year I've been trying to make more time to watch movies, making up for a lot of lost time, I suppose. And one film I've watched recently is not a recent film. Uh, it's called A Good Year, and it came out in 2006. And it featured Russell Crowe as a bond trader in London who gets into trouble for playing loose with the rules of the bond market. Now, amid all that drama, Crowe's character named Max Skinner gets word that his beloved uncle Henry has died and that he is the sole heir of his vineyard and estate in the Provence region of France. Max's parents had died when he was young, so he would spend his summers home from boarding school with his uncle Henry in Provence. Max must go in person from London to Provence to quickly sell off the property, or at least that was his plan. But complications ensue, as you might expect, so as to move the plot of the movie along. And one complicating factor is the presence of a jealous winemaker, Francis Duflot, who grew up at the vineyard and fears being separated from his precious vines. Duflot does things to, to undermine the sale of the property in hopes that he will retain his role as the chief winemaker, not to mention be able to stay in his home and his way of life on the land. Duflot resents that Henry left the vineyard and home to Max, who had not been back to Provence in years, caught up as he was in the high-intensity world of bond trading by day and not a little dissolute living by night. Duflo helps hopes that Max will return to London and leave him to continue managing the vineyard as he had faithfully done over the years, though his hard work had not in the end been rewarded by Henry when he decided to entrust the land to Max instead. The plot of a good year, especially that tension between Max and Duflo, reminds me a lot of today's gospel from Luke 15, which we know as the parable of the prodigal son. In conversations I've had over the years with people about this parable, I often hear people say that on first read, they tend to identify more with the eldest son, the one who thinks that this isn't fair, the one who wants his hard work recognized and his lazy, irresponsible younger brother to be disinherited or turned away by their father. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But the point of Jesus telling us this story, of course, is to get us to imagine ourselves in the role of the younger son and to realize that we are all really, in the end, the younger son. Sometimes we have strayed, and on occasion we may have been reckless, and we may have wasted what we have been given. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, 
but here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Now, over the centuries, this parable has shaped the way that we understand the word prodigal. Prodigal, in popular discourse, now gets used oftentimes to mean someone who has run away or abandoned a situation and later wants to return. However, what I was reminded of in preparing for this sermon is that prodigal, in fact, means characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure, lavish, or recklessly spendthrift. The younger brother was prodigal in the way that he quickly spent an inheritance that was meant to provide security and stability for him for the rest of his life. When he has spent through the last of it, he is so desperate to survive that he finds work feeding pigs. So he's been brought down at least several notches. And as often the case when we go through times of suffering and scarcity, the younger brother gains some new perspective on his life. When the younger brother came to himself, as Luke phrases it, or was brought to his senses, as the Message Bible puts it, he made a turn from his reckless lifestyle toward ways of humility and simplicity. He realized that he needed to return home and admit wrongdoing. He was willing to be a servant just to be able to be back home. He realized he needed to be reconciled with his father in order to survive and thrive. And so when the younger son came to himself, he realized that he needed to make a U-turn, that he needed to turn back toward home in order to move forward in grace and love. He needed to leave behind the lifestyle of trying to be someone he wasn't and get back to the basics of who he was raised to be and where he came from. During Lent, I have been reading through a book called The Character of Virtue by Stanley Hauerwas, who's an emeritus professor of Christian ethics at Duke University. Written as a series of letters to his godson each year on the anniversary of his baptism, one of these letters focuses on the virtue of simplicity. Simplicity, Hauerwas says, is best understood as the virtue characteristic of those who don't have to try to be what they are. This is why simplicity may be a virtue that is characteristic of every other virtue. Hauerwas tells his godson, as you grow up, you'll find the temptation to compartmentalize your life will be ever-present. To be able to compartmentalize our lives seems to be a necessary survival skill if we're to be successful in the world. The false distinction between the public and the private seems to be a given because it makes possible our presumption that we aren't really the person who has had to do in public what we wouldn't do in private. So if you find yourself saying, this isn't really me, that's an indication that the simplicity which should characterize your life is in jeopardy. Hauerwas references an old Shaker hymn to make his point about the simplicity to be found in being who we were made to be, where we ought to be. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, 
Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. As Hauerwas reflects, to have the gift of simplicity is to rejoice in the recognition of life as gift. And those who delight in where their lives have come down enjoy the possibility of recognizing simplicity. And they also have a fighting chance of avoiding the great enemy of simplicity, which is pretension. This sense of turning and turning till we come round right puts me in mind of what we all promise in our baptismal covenant. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? I do. Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? I do. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son turns, repents of his wrongdoing, and puts his whole trust in the father's extravagant grace and love. The father who welcomed him home, forgave him, and even celebrated his return. But it's important to note that the older brother also needed to turn, repent, and be reconciled both with his younger brother and with his father. The parable ends with the father reassuring his older son that you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. <coughs> Out of his own fears of losing his status and his financial security, the older brother has fallen into sin himself. It's a different kind of sinfulness, but it's sinfulness nonetheless. We never hear the older brother ask to be forgiven for his hardness of heart, his grudge holding, or his resentment. So I wonder how the meaningfulness of this parable would change for us if we heard it with a different ending in which both older and younger brother repent of their wrongdoing. So this past week, on what ended up being a very stormy Tuesday evening, I had the chance, along with I know a number of others from here in this congregation, to hear the Pulitzer Prize winning author and our fellow Episcopalian John Meacham give a lecture at Samford. Meacham's talk was titled, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. And in his introduction to his 2018 book of the same name, Meacham reflects on the power of fear. As Aristotle wrote in his rhetoric, fear is caused by what, whatever we feel has great power of destroying us or of harming us in ways that tend to cause us great pain. <clears throat> whatever we feel. Fear can be rational, but it is often irrational. To be concerned is not necessarily the same thing as being fearful. Fear is more emotional, more destabilizing, more maddening. Fear, Aristotle observed, does not strike those who are in the midst of great prosperity. Those who are frightened of losing what they have are the most vulnerable to fear. 
which sounds a lot like the resentful older brother in the parable. His resentment and hatred for his younger brother and his father stem from his fear of losing what he has. But as Meacham reflects, the opposite of fear is hope. Fear feeds anxiety and produces anger. Hope breeds optimism and feelings of well-being. Fear is about limits. Hope is about growth. Fear casts its eyes warily, even shiftily, across the landscape. Hope looks forward toward the horizon. Fear points at others assigning blame. Hope points ahead, working for the common good. Fear pushes away. Hope pulls others closer. Fear divides. Hope unifies. Amen.